Okay, this is a special edition of Stimulus and Response. Today, my co-host Jeremy and Smith is off, and in his place, we have Jeff Bayedo, who is the COO and I believe co-founder. Is that right, Jeff? You're the co-founder? It is, yeah. Of, of Enjoy Global. Can you quickly, Jeff, just give us a little bit of a rundown as to what Enjoy Global is and, and what you guys are doing in the world? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, so fun and such an honor. So thank you, Damon. My pleasure. Uh, so Enjoy Global, we are, in, in essence, a software company that we've, we're using the latest in neuroscience and positive psychology and gamification to help companies create uh, the most positive and productive culture possible in, in just a series of 30-day challenges that all their teams and employees can go through and really develop the muscles and the mindsets that we all know are kind of at the core for success in, in, all its, in, in all its meaning. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And the reason I, I wanted to have Jeff on is because we also are working together. We're running a 30-day flow challenge through Enjoy Global. We're partnering together and collaborating together. And so we just ran our first challenge last month. We have another one coming up on July 13th. And I'll link this in the show notes so that people who are listening can, can check that out as well. And, and also just check out what all the great things that Enjoy Global are doing. So Jeff, here's one of the premises that we like to use on this podcast. My co-host Jeremy put this towards me. He asked me what my cover story was. And so in a way, I guess I, I, I feel like I wanted to ask you what Enjoy Global was and kind of get your cover story. But the real essence of this podcast is really to try to get a little bit farther into the secret garden. So this is, as we bill ourselves, part therapy session. I am a high performance coach. Uh, Jeremy is a journalist. And we just like to probe topics that, that are interesting to us and that we hope they're, that are also interesting to our audience. And today, I want to talk about some of the, maybe some of the kind of the higher level, deeper subjects. And I'll start with, as I, as I, as I know you, have a master's degree in spiritual psychology. And, and I want to start there. I want to start a little bit with spiritual psychology. But before I do, I want to share a quick story about my yes. upbringing. And I want, to, I want to think a little bit about religion and spirituality. So I was raised in the Midwest. I was raised in Michigan. And I was basically, I experienced two different religions. So I lived in a college town. I grew up Catholic. Hmm. And in our college town, there was a Catholic church, St. John's. And at St. John's, it, it felt very hippie. There was acoustic guitars. Father Folio would talk about the Bible in ways that felt really approachable. He was also, you know, a, a good tennis player, which was something that I related with. And there were a lot of college kids that would come to church. And I felt like this was a really beautiful way to approach religion. As a young guy, I felt I loved going to church. Now, when I went down to suburban Detroit to my grandmother O'Neill's house, that was a different religion. Now, that, that religion was also Catholicism, but and her house was much stricter. For example, before church, we couldn't eat. At church, there were very few songs that, that, that stimulated me. And it, on the whole, it felt 
kind of scary and really kind of locked in and closed up. So as, I, as a young guy, I remember just sort of like feeling aware that, hey, wait, these are both Catholic churches and yet they're completely different. So I wanted to just kind of like reach out to you and ask about your upbringing. Certainly want to get to your, your rationale for spiritual psychology, but how were you raised and, and where were you raised and, and, and how did religion fit into your, your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from a small town in the Midwest as well. Just 9,000 people in a small town in Wisconsin. We lived, you know, in the country. We didn't have a farm, but it was, we were surrounded by farmland and, you know, everyone knew everybody. There was, you know, no locked doors. My, uh, my dad was an optometrist and coached my little league teams. And so we, it was just a very kind of idyllic little town also raised Catholic and we had one Catholic church in or a Catholic school in town. So I went through, and at that time they still had some nuns, some, they were transitioning kind of out, but we, I had a sister Mary Sponza and a sister Mary Robertine and all the sister Marys. And so, so that was a very big part of, of my upbringing uh, church on Sunday, but it was more, it was kind of, it, it, it was closer to the strict one, but we, we did a lot of those things without any meaning behind them. So the no, no being on Friday or giving, giving up something, you know, for Catholics, there's for Lent, there's often a, and it's in, in, again, in its essence, it's really beautiful, but what it had translated for us was, you know, giving up candy for 39 days. And on the 40th day, we ate as much chocolate as we possibly could uh, on Easter Sunday. So, you know, not we're going, I felt like it was more of going through the motions. Church was not something that we looked forward to. Very boring, very boring, Mm -hmm. very rigid, super boring homilies or sermons. The, at that time there was no connection to youth or no, the music was awful and it was just, Again, it was an obligation, but not something to look forward to. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, again, for me coming out of coming into my teenage years, I remember feeling like, wait, this, there's got to be something deeper than this. I, I felt the same way around Easter, same kind of deal where it felt these things felt like rituals, but, but they didn't necessarily like hit me on a deep level. Yeah, but I also remember as a as a young guy being exposed to some spiritual teachers. For you know, in my era, there were tapes, and my dad was was I would I guess I could call him New Age to some degree. But we listened to Dr. Wayne Dyer. Mm-hmm. We listened to Dr. Leo Bascalia, who was a, a professor at USC who taught a, a course around love. You know, I was exposed to some of those types of people early on as well. And their message seemed to resonate a little bit more with me. How, how did you either make the transition or, or enter into, or wh- what does spirituality mean yeah. to you? You know, Well, from a young age and for whatever reason, that desire, and I, I think it's probably in all of us uh, at some point, but for me, it was, it, it was a louder voice from early on. I remember asking the questions of you know, who am I and, and why am I here? Where did I come from? Um, in that kind of spiritual sense. And I wanted the answers to come from church. And I, I really wanted the priests to have answers. And I remember in one of our 
you know, religion classes in fourth grade, asking a question and feeling really disappointed in the quality of the answer. Hmm. But the desire to know and the desire to have, uh, I don't know if an understanding is the right word, but just some sort of exploration into the mystery of the universe and, and of, you know, how, how it all happened and the beauty and the, all of that was, was there from early on. At one point I thought like, and I, and I loved the idea. I was very sensitive as a kid on all levels. So, but mostly when things were hurting somewhere that I felt that very strongly. Mm. And so watching commercials of, you know, poverty or uh, like that, that would ruin my emotion. My emotional state for the day would be down and, and mm. just really, <clears throat> so I was also eager to help from an early age. I, I had a desire and for a while entertained the idea of becoming a priest, but, but it was short lived because again, I really wanted family, the idea of a celibate life. Like there's some just archaic notions again in, in Catholicism that didn't work at all for me, but I, I didn't feel they worked in today's world at all. It just felt like it was in a huge need for an upgrade or, you know, a 2.0 or some sort of evolution, which it hadn't done. So that, so that was the, the kind of the starting point. And then, you know, what else is there? And that started to be the exploration of other religions and, and, and then ultimately just what is it that's at the core of all of that? Is there some sort of universalness to this desire to connect with a spiritual nature or have some, some connection to more than just the physical nature of, of my being? Mm, it's so it's so interesting and I was a, an only child and I, w- I would consider myself also very sensitive mm-hmm. also very I, I was an empath in, in a lot of ways yeah. and, and I hurt when when the world around me hurt but I also felt like I don't know about your midwestern upbringing in that sense but I was also an athlete and I also feel like I kind of got swept into you know the samsara of life where mm-hmm. you know it was about you know, you know, getting a girlfriend and, you know, achieving, achieving different levels in my competitive life as a tennis player, um, joining a fraternity. And yet all in the midst of all of that, there was also something that was missing. And it was almost like I didn't have the courage to act upon a deeper intuition or a deeper sense of what was happening within me. And I, I'm 51 years old, and it, it, it's taken me a long time in life to be able to, frankly, I don't know if I'm even there yet, you know, where that I've, I've felt the ability to just sort of be vulnerable and, and open myself up in a way. I'm really good at it when I travel. I've done some really profound travel in my life and as a seeker, but, but I, didn't, I didn't get into you know, truly, genuinely helping people or putting that at the front of the headline of my life until later in my life. And and I think in part was somewhat of a hierarchy of needs type of situation where, you know, you you need to kind of take care of yourself and and figure out, you know, my my grandmother told a really uh, interesting, she, she made a point to me when I was probably in college, which was make sure your eyes see everything they need to see in this world. And, and I took that as go explore. And, and, and so I did. And, and yet I also feel like what was really underneath that message was sometimes you have to get into a deeper place within yourself 
when you decided to go for a master's degree in spiritual psychology, was that, was that kind of in line with, you know, a, a progression that you had made through this, this whole process that you're talking about? Yeah, I really relate to a lot of your story. And I think by the way you do an exceptional job of being vulnerable and authentic in, in, in the world, I'm just inspired by the quality of your sharing all the time, right? Mm -hmm. In normal conversations, it just seems like you have one setting, which is deeply authentic, where I tend to <clears throat> at least just notice this oscillation. I can do more superficial if that's what I'm, instead of just pulling everybody to a deeper level and holding that that's cool. So I just appreciate that about you. Thank you. Yeah. So one defining moment for me was, you know, in eighth grade, I was pre-pubescent, you know, kind of that pre-pubescent, really kind of conflicting attitudes with my dad at the time. And to his credit, instead of writing it off, he gave me, you know, to the kind of preteen years or difficult age, gave me an Earl Nightingale cassette tape at the time, The Strangest Secret in the World. And that was, that was the beginning for me of this, this uh, at least a new way of thinking. So that, that didn't get to Wayne Dyer yet or those kind of folks, but it did. So it was Earl Nightingale, Zig Ziglar, Dennis Waitley, and then, it, and then Tony Robbins and a bunch of these who were talking mindset. And mm. that changed, it changed my life. That's all I listened to through high school. I, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't listen to music. I listened to cassette tapes on the way to school, on the way back to school, before bed in the morning, hours and hours every day. And I was the most positive kid by a lot in my hometown. Wow. I mean, again, there was, there, there was only a couple hundred of kids. So that was, <laughs> was not, not a huge deal, but, but by, and, and it got a lot of what I was looking for in terms of connection. And, but what I realized as I went through, you know, one other part of that was the dichotomy that you kind of spoke to that you got wrapped up in. For me, it was this definition of success, success, especially to my father, who I was trying to prove myself to was, was in the world. It was a, a, a job, it was money, uh, security, you know, but it was the exterior definition of success. That's, why, that's how I thought I was going to be proving myself. So that was, and that took precedent over helping people. So I didn't go into the volunteer world or the nonprofit world. I went into how can I make the most amount of money fastest so that I could retire and then do what I wanted to do and help people. Mm -hmm. That was where I got kind of early on which will play out because it was an exercise that I was given much later around redefining success that really broke the, it just gave me more freedom around how success would be defined for me. And that financial success could be one element of it, but not the entire thing. And that I didn't have to wait to be helping the world or helping others or being the person I wanted to be until after I was in this case, Maslow's hierarchy as well had taken care of those other things. So that had kind of was a big pivot and that happens, you know, kind of a little bit later, but those two things being put on to the positive self-help folks in terms of mindset and beliefs and goal setting and all those things. And then getting that even being positive was still shallow for me. Mm. I, I ended up having a very beautiful life travel, you know, through my twenties, through college, I made friends easily. I was welcome everywhere but I was missing too. And the depth wasn't there for me. And, and it felt like I, I knew how to be okay in this narrow framework, but anything more than that. And I did everything I could to avoid feeling certain things. I did everything I could to avoid conversations that weren't com comfortable. 
So my life experience ended up being very regulated to a small band, which meant I could only hang out with people for so long. Hmm. So the depth of my relationships was less, you know, less than what's what I know now is available. So Hmm. all of that was leading also in the career, things were working and money was coming and success in that exterior. But I remember being in my twenties and having, you know, being a partner in a company, making good money, working with great people, friends of mine, but it was in a field that didn't speak to my heart. And I would wake up every six months or so and be like, if I do die, if I die now, this isn't why I came. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would have that awareness and then it'd be like, yeah, but what else are you going to do? And it would, it would go back down, but it, it did get louder and louder. And then, and then it was where I started to really be open to and it was a, a serendipitous, if, if I could, can I share one story on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm in a, uh, I'm in a, you know, I think the beautiful thing about life is that our path gets revealed to us. The more aware, the more conscious we are, the subtler the, the messages need to be. But if we're not listening, it gets louder and louder and louder and louder and in whatever area of our life really needs the attention. So in this case, I, I was somewhat aware, and this is how it showed up for me. I was in line at lunch at a place in Austin, Texas, where I was living at a Jason's deli. So there's this long line, it's lunchtime and this pretty woman comes in and she's obviously in a hurry and it kind of looks around and she's like, Oh, you know, I could just feel that something she was rushed. And I said, you know, you want, do you want to jump in in, in line in front of me? And she's like, ah, oh, thank you so much. She does pays leaves as I'm still kind of finishing. She comes back in same look on her face. And I'm like, did you forget something? She's like, yes. Do you want to jump in front? She's like, yes, please. Thank you. And anyway, so as she's, so she does that twice as she's leaving, she turns and she says, you know what? I'm really not in that big of a hurry. I'm so sorry. And she stops. And in a moment she goes to a place that had, like I immediately became emotional with how raw and honest she was being with me. And she said, I really appreciate how you just showed up. Thank you. Have a great day. And we had had a little conversation. I did end up seeing her again. And she, I was just like blown away. Like she was just this being that, and the way she was, was I had never even heard of before in, in a human. And so when I, I did get a chance to talk to her a little bit more and she had just graduated from uh, the university of Santa Monica, where I did my master's program. And when she told me about it, I didn't realize that was a thing and, you know, called applied. And I was, I was enrolled uh, a couple of days later. Wow. What a cool story. So thanks for letting me share that. I don't share that that often. but I I appreciate that. Yeah, this feels like some secret garden kind of material for sure. Success. You mentioned success. And I know I know enjoy global and and it seems the mission of the company is 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 a lot around success. Um, You also mentioned if I die, this isn't what I was here to do which sounds a little to me like stoicism where, you know, you're sort of thinking about if everything was gone, what would I have, what would be left? Or at least that there's a mission for you. What, what is your definition of success and, and how does that show up in your, in your day-to-day life and, and how you've built this company? Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, so the, the exercise that really changed this for me, which has been really pivotal, pivotal, uh, in terms of my entire, the course of my entire life was take the question, take the sentence, I know I'm successful if, or I know I, I know I'm successful when, and then fill that in three different ways, right? And then they had a big list of, op, uh, of kind of sample ones. I know I'm successful when I'm 
the president of a company. I know I'm successful when I have a beautiful, loving relationship. I know I'm successful when um, I'm healthy and, and at my ideal weight. Like, so, you know, just all of those which are really beautiful thoughts. Mm-hmm. And as I reflected on those and started coming down, it started to narrow like, okay. And for me, the three that I landed on was I did e- the most, e- the easiest one for me was still in that financial realm. It was to have enough money that I didn't have to worry about taking care of my day-to-day needs ever, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if I had that, that would be, I didn't need a billion dollars, but if I didn't have to worry about my day-to-day bills, mm-hmm. uh, that would feel extraordinarily freeing and, and that would be great. So there was a financial one. Then it was, if I had an abundance of energy every day to, do, to, to live life at the fullest in terms of whatever I was doing. Energy had always been an issue for me. I always felt tired. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of being, feeling alive and, and having energy as one of my success measures was really, that really resonated. And then finally, it was helping as many other people uh, live the life of their dreams as possible. And that one also, as soon as I landed on that, that, that just felt great. I really loved the idea that I could play a role, whatever, however small, in someone else opening to whatever they wanted to, to do in, in their life. And, and then I would happily say like, then the journey has been kind of meandering into how, how to deliver on those things and, and live into those three pillars in my life as I've moved forward, which have become the pillars. I met someone who's my business partner and she shared a lot of the same principles and values. And that's what we built Enjoy On. Mm, that's so beautiful. And, you know, I can, you can just feel the, the sort of the positive and mission driven intensity around when you say those three things. And, you know, it, I, I think a lot about values as well. And, you know, we, in my practice, we, you know, I, I try to, to help people to kind of tease that out, you know, what, you know, not necessarily in that specific way, but, you know, how do you want to show up? And if you're looking back on your life and, you know, everyone's around your casket and you're able to sort of glean the moment, what do you want people to be saying? And, and I, I really feel like that when people have a deeper understanding of our mortality and, and have that sense that time is fleeting, that there isn't time to wait, it really does distill down to what is most essential. You know, another really pivotal moment in my life was in my mid twenties where I went and I worked at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Northern India and the Lama there, and you know, if, if you, if you don't mind, I'll share a quick story Please. as well. Yeah. So they, they had just, I, they just had a, a terrorist attack in the, in the area at the sister monastery and the, the Lama and, and, and the kind of the, the, the higher ups that were kind of running the place performed a practice called Tonglen, which was to bring in the pain and suffering, not only of those that, that lost their lives and those that loved the, those people, but also the terrorists themselves. And it was, a, it was a really pivotal moment for me thinking about humanity, where it's not just this duality of those were the bad guys and, yeah. you know, and we need to go get those people. But it, it kind of cut through something for me that, that felt really powerful. And so my experience there was really profound because this, this man had had the ability to ask those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Damon, what do you do? And I would go on and tell him my cover story. 
And he would just sit there in silence. And I was like, oh my God, I just screwed up this, you know, like, I don't, what am I supposed to say? And he would do it day after day until he kind of like got me to be in the present moment with him. And then once I got in the present moment with him, then we were able to have a conversation around what mattered. And, and it was a really uh, moving experience for me, for me to start to think about, well, wh- who, who am I? And what, not what I, not my cover story, but what is my secret garden? Where, what is, what matters to me on a deep level? And, you know, now that's sort of, you know, kind of morphed into values. And, and, and I think that when we know our why, and we, when we have that North star, when we can kind of set our compass, we, we can manage the how. And I, you know, I feel like I can kind of get knocked down, but not knocked off of my moorings because it, when I get back up, I can sort of meander, as you say, back in the direction. And it also, I think, really allows for us to be more present because in every moment, there's an opportunity to kind of take a, and, you know, the next best step towards uh, what it is that you care about. And so I, I really feel that, you know, that, that's a really profound, simple practice, but really profound one. How do you, working with elite athletes, I, I'm very curious now as a parent of a five-year-old and, you know, the conversation before I had Bodhi, the idea of watching parents who put their kids in sports at three and then in, you know, AAU clubs and, and, and really put them on a program before the kid really had any say in it. It was just maybe there was some natural uh, talent there. The parents were certainly into it. But the advantage that that kid then has at ages six, seven, and eight, after having three or four years of practice and coaching and all those things becomes pretty, pretty visible. And, and then when you get all the way up into like, you know, the college level is so competitive or the Olympic level is so competitive, the areas that you work with professional level, I always wonder what, what someone that in, in your world would say, is that worth it? What, what parental advice would you give? Because there does seem to be some advantages. It does seem to be take, you know, unleashing some amazing talent. But I also feel at the expense of sometimes just life or being a kid or some of those things. Could you share your thoughts just in that arena? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for bringing all of that up. And I have to say to, to your question, one of the larger blocks of clients that I have are those that are experiencing burnout Mm. and those three, four or five year olds when they're 13, 14 and 15, when they, they don't have the passion and the drive underneath because it's not intrinsic this was something that was forced upon them. And they were good at it early, as you say, and they were, you know, superstars, six, seven, eight, nine. But it ended up becoming a slog and a job for most of them. Um, most of the high level people that I know weren't great when they were young. And they didn't necessarily start that early. And they certainly didn't specialize. So those are three areas that I personally, you know, I, I, I can see kind of, you know, the calculus around that. So for me, it has to be fun. It, it has to be fun. You know, there has to be a sense that the, the kid is, is steering the ship. And so 
for me, I have a, a daughter who's, you know, nearly eight and, you know, I've, I've resisted the, the, t- the temptation to become one of those dads who goes out and feeds the tennis balls to her, right. but she does now, she has found an interest in it mm-hmm. and, and we'll go out and play. But, but as soon as she says, okay, that's good. That's it. I'm happy to walk to kind of like, you know, end the session and, which goes against a lot of the things that, you know, we preach in, in high performance, you know, you have to have grit, you have to have discipline, you have to right. right all of that stuff. But, but we also know a lot more about sort of the develop the, the developing brain. And if there, if they, if it becomes more of a, a job or it becomes something where the, you know, parents are smiling more when I hit the ball in and you know, trying to fix things when I hit the ball out. Now kids are associating their successes with the love of their parents. Yeah. And that to me is the one that's the most profound and, and, and makes me, makes me sad when, when I work with, you know, 15 year olds who they don't, they can't articulate that often, but that, you know, my graduate thesis on fear of failure Mm. And what I, what I saw in there was that, you know, the, the brain, you know, obviously we, we know the, the amygdala is you know, this ancient part of the brain that's really life or death and, you know, warning signals and all of that. And so, you know, for, for a 15, 16 year old going out to compete at, at whatever level they're competing at feels like life or death. And it feels like the, the, the storyline goes, if I lose, dad isn't going to love me as much. Yeah. If dad doesn't love me as much, I'm not going to be as confident and it's, and that's going to show up in the classroom. I'm not going to do as well in school. My grades won't be there. I'm not going to get into college. And, and literally I've heard kids go down this track where they find they, they, the finish line is that they're homeless mm. and, and that they're not loved. So there's, there's a real profound danger in the push. You know, I, as you're saying that, and I think that's fundamentally, if, if everyone kind of got that, that our main base building block is love. And mm-hmm. the, the worst feeling that we could have is fear or the absence of love, that being, you know, the fear of not being loved. And so when things get paired like that, not only are they going out, you know, where it's life or death, it's, it's because if I don't succeed, I won't be loved basically it's an exile, right? Which we know in the past was the worst form of punishment. You are now exiled and no longer a part of the community and loved. So I I think it's interesting to hear you say that because it makes sense at an elite athlete level, but I, uh, in, in spiritual psychology, as you could kind of asked how I got into that, I think I met a lot of high performers uh, who were drawn to this program and from all field, different fields and different walks of life. And, and it's very similar, almost universal, that at some point, the, the uncoupling of how I paired what love means to me needs to get addressed. And, and sometimes that's much more subtle and, and not as obvious as a tennis match. But until we actually uncouple the fact that love just is and, and isn't as a result or conditional around anything for our, our, our base nature, we're going to be struggling to fill a hole that, that has no bottom, right? Mm. Like there's, we can never, I always love, we can never get enough of what we don't really need. And so this idea of being filled up with wins 
that's trying to fill a hole that says I'm not lovable or I'm not good enough unless that'll never work because there'll always be another match. There'll always be another thing that you have to do to keep the love. So it immediately empties versus, you know, going on a journey of trying to figure out that love is at the center and I can access that. And if I can, then everything else is something I'm doing, but it's, it's, it's not the same, same level of risk that I've associated with, with it, that most of us create that pair in zero to seven, you know, from in the early ages. Mm, Right. That's really powerful. How are you, how does that show up for you as a parent with Bodhi? And I mean, are you, do you catch yourself kind of unconsciously pushing towards, you know, achievement or are you capable of kind of keeping love at the center within your interactions? You know, it's, it's, it's been one of the most natural spaces for me. I, I hadn't known unconditional love from me, mm. probably for me, I would say, at, but I couldn't feel that. If, if, if people don't have an access point for unconditional love from them, we can't feel it for us. So it didn't matter how many people unconditionally loved me. I was only going to feel love conditioned, conditionally. That's mm. how I had it wired. And so when Bodhi came, that was the first real example of like this, this little being just being here opens my heart in a way that I, you know, have only really realized on, on drugs, right? Like that mm-hmm. in ceremony and, and different places that um, an ecstasy or an ayahuasca feeling and, and those kind of um, ceremonies. So here's this little being, and I feel grateful that my wife and I were just very much around like him and, and his experience. And so I, I have absolutely none of that. Like I, and what's been beautiful about that is, to your point, like watching his natural interest and then saying yes to that versus like, that's an un- discomfort, you know, recently with the lockdown, the shelter in place, you know, we're looking for things to do. And one of the things that he and I started doing were arts and crafts in the morning. I would have an hour before work that I'd be able to spend with him. Well, arts and crafts is not something I know myself to be able to do mm-hmm. and to have a new idea every day or to be able to make stuff out of what we have in the house and so what I notice as most parents do is like, wait, I'm not, un- I'm not comfortable with that. So let's not do that. Let's do something that I'm more comfortable with. Mm. And what I realized, again, he doesn't care at all. He's interested in this, and, but he doesn't care if it ends up looking like a house or uh, a rabbit. He just wants to do that together. And so mm. the idea that the first couple of things we made were very funny, right? And, and I could watch my my issues of like, oh, that doesn't look like what we're trying to make. Like that was a failure. And (laughs) then seeing him not care at all or laughing and having such a good time and then being like, oh, wow, like this is just about doing. And we would, you know, and then YouTube has been a great thing. I could watch little five minute craft things that in an hour I could do. So it was, (laughs) it was a really beautiful example. Again, being with, I think kids and parenting is one of the beautiful, most beautiful spiritual journeys there is Mm. if, if we're open to it because they represent what's possible in terms of unconditional love of excitement for life of laughter and joy. And uh, we lose, you know, if, if we're not that still it's because we lost it, not because we aren't it. Mm. And so it's, you know, his reminder, he gives me the other big lesson. I think that's been beautiful is I want to be more like that, Mm. not have him be more like me. Mm. So he gives me permission to laugh more, to be sillier, to not take myself. So, so damn seriously. And, And, when I'm in that, I like myself better. And, mm. and so 
I, I think that has been its own uh, beautiful, positive snowball effect. You know? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, it's, it's, it's unlocked something inside of my heart as well to have a child. And, you know, the way I frame the way we show up in the world is as an adult, I, I think most of us, we have these high beam flashlights mm. and it's pointed way out there. And that's the, that's the goal. We have to get there. Whereas my daughter, she has this beautifully splayed lantern and mm. it just splays in this like couple feet radius around her. And she's like, oh, check that out. Oh, that's beautiful. Look at that cricket. Oh, wow. And I'm like, no, we have to go there. We have to get there. We have to get uh, there. And that she's that like, idea. No. Yeah. yeah let's be here. Like the ultimate practice, which I think, you know, whether it's in Northern India or Tibet, or, you know, for me, I remember doing, you know, seven day silent retreat in Thailand. And it's like, I don't actually have to go all the way, you know, halfway around the world to study with a high ranking monk from Burma. I could just watch my, my four or five year old and be like, Oh, that, that like, let's, because it happens everywhere. We're going for a bike ride and he sees an he sees a bee on the ground or an ant or some sort of bug and we stop and that's the next 10 or 15 minutes instead of getting to the park where I thought we were going. <laughs> and and then just being with him and watching that and that practice of really, hey, let that go. Like that's not important. The being with him is important. Let that go. And all of that is, you know, I think for I, for me, it's been the it's been the greatest practice in consciousness because it's really about all those fundamental truths of being present uh, of anchoring on the values that are most important, mm. our connection, joy, you know, mm. happiness and being, t- so that is, I think, I wish all parents to be, you know, I, the, the sad thing is I think most of our lives have become so skewed where we're so busy and career has been so highlighted and the, and the need to provide in a certain way that two incomes are super important. And, you know, and then we end up, a lot of people end up missing, you know, those moments that you just can't get back. I just, mm. you, I just, I think that's one of those things to, to see like what at the end of the day, at the end of my life, what I really want more of only more time with him, only more mm. time with my wife and, and, and that's it. And right now I feel full because it's high quality and I can still then work. But if that, that ever gets out for a few days, I'm like, this is, someone's got to shift mm. Uh, mm. because it's, I'm doing more of, a lower quality element in, in mm-hmm. my life. Right. Yeah. So much, so many thoughts around all of that. I've been really meditating a lot on self-compassion lately. And, uh, you know, as we know, we are, you know, we say things to ourselves that we wouldn't say to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And we're just, you know, tremendously difficult on ourselves. And, and, you know, as you say, having a child, it, it sort of opens up that spiritual, it's, it's a vulnerability. It's, it's kind of a heart explosion and and my daughter can come over and, and she's she can intuit when something is wrong with me and she can put her hand on my my arm or my back or and just kind of like daddy are you okay in a way that reminds me that oh that's right i have to check in with myself yeah do uh, you feel does her touch like her energy can you feel that shift something absolutely, absolutely. i i really notice that. And if anyone's ever, you know, experienced good energy work or, you know, healers, Mm -hmm. there's something that's very palpable with, with people who know what they're doing. And I find that often with, with Bodhi and it's just uh, holding my hand or it's like, wow, like something just is happening because Mm -hmm. his energy is either pure or loving or 
something and, and it can really help recenter me. For sure. Yeah. I feel like kids are like Reiki masters. Reiki masters. That's exactly, (laughs) I just, I feel like, man, this is, this is it. Like, this is exactly what, what that's, that feels like. Yeah. Just come put your hand on me, honey. And, and and heal me, (laughs) you know, it's funny. So my co-host Jeremy, he, he, when we, we were talking earlier in the year and he had had uh, gone through a bout of depression and, and he uh, went and did a five day silent retreat and through the retreat, you know, and he's open about this and, and he's going to explore this on a deeper level, but I'll just give you a little bit of the, the highlight of it. He, you know, he just kind of cracked open and, and felt, felt enlightened, felt mm. like connected to everything. And then he, then he came home and some of the funny stories after when he came home, he also has a daughter and, you know, daddy, I don't really want to brush my teeth right now. That's okay. Everything's that's fine. And, mm-hmm. you know, daddy, you know, or just, you know, not, not, not connecting back into the real world. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that this is a really interesting uh, place where, as you mentioned, we're, we're busy with our lives and we're so, you know, d- two incomes and we have to have, uh, the hustle and the bustle. Is it possible, Jeff, to, you know, to be an enlightened being and still live in the day-to-day hustle bustle that, yeah. that we, that we live in? You, you know, that was really a, a big question that we explored in the spiritual psychology program, because a lot of us had had beautiful experiences uh, in the Peruvian jungles or in Tibet or somewhere else. And it was this, it's like, while we're there, it seems like I can hold this space and everything's great, but that's not really the test. The test is, can we, can we be enlightened? Can we have an enlightened way of being in the real world with, uh, you know, with back-to-back meetings and, and kids that are yelling in the background and, you know, and, and managing and juggling all of those things. That's the real work. And not that anyone can be enlightened on a mountaintop in a cave when there is no other challenges and nothing else coming at you, but it's certainly much easier. If you remove all the distractions and all the pressures and all the things of, of today's life, which is what a lot of monks did in the past and not to diminish that life, it's beautiful. But if you get rid of a lot of, you know, their path of getting rid of, you know, material desire and no marriage and so no kids well a lot of the things that bring stress and joy into our lives it's just easier if you're not dealing with any of that versus most of us are dealing with it so i think the real game is to can you be in the world and so for jeremy i'd love to ask the question because i think that is it like at some level none of it none of it matters right at the highest level it's like brush your teeth don't brush your teeth like whatever mm-hmm. it's all good but the reality is, can you have a conversation with your son or daughter about why they need to brush their teeth in the most where you still only feel love for them and that's all they're experiencing and they have to brush their teeth, hmm. right? And you, you, the, you have things to do because at some level when you're feeling that good, like that's it. We're all chasing a feeling. We're always all chasing a feeling. We all just only want to feel great. When we feel great, then we don't need to do anything, right? So at the highest level of that enlightenment, when everything feels phenomenal, we feel connected to everything, then there's no doing that would add to it. Uh, right now, all doing is designed to add to a, in some way to our, our, our feeling. So it, it makes sense, but so few of us ever get to that place. And even the people who are, 
some of the, the Indian gurus and different people that I love and are just wise, you know, way showers on the planet, they're still doing in the world because why not? Like we're in a three-dimensional world. We have to do, we might as well. It's just, they're not attached to the outcome. They're not attached to how you feel about them. And that is it. Like mm. to go through and be, and they're just loving. And there's a handful of them that I watch and listen to. And it's just like, that guy's happy. No matter who stands up and asks a hard question, difficult questions, challenges him. He's just like, I mean, he is just love. And I think that's the real game is how to be, you know, can we be in our day to day, still hold true to the values and the, and the, the morality or the way that we want our kids to be, or our team to be at work, but do it in a way that, that, that what they feel is that person really cares about me. Hmm. They really, they really see me and, and they want the best for me. And what the best is in their opinion is holding me accountable for certain things or having me live into a vision that they have for me. You know what I mean? So I, I think that would, that, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, I mean, it feels like what you've created at enjoy and, and, you know, maybe a couple more minutes and then, and then we'll kind of, we'll wrap it up, but it feels like what you've created is, is an, sort of an elegant gamified way to help people to understand that this is it. Whatever we're doing right now is enough. And sure, we can have our, our high, hard goals and we can have, you know, the dreams and we, we can gravitate towards certain you know, feelings, as you say. But when we take notice of the step that we just took or that the experience that we're in currently, it tends to, at least, at least it's done this for me, it tends to mitigate some of that duality, some of that sense that I have to feel like, oh, this has to feel good. Sometimes it's a slog. Sometimes things are not necessarily going to feel good. What, what's, a, what's a tip or two for our audience who are listening to this, thinking to themselves, my life is stressful. And this all sounds really wonderful, you guys. But how do I remember to do this, you know, I think it's a really beautiful thought that we need to remember what we forgot. And what we forgot is that we're all connected and that, that, that love is at the center of all of this. How do, how do I do that when I'm, you know, on 101, you know, stuck in traffic and people are, you know, flipping me off and, and cutting me off? Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the question, right? And for our work at Enjoy and, and our approach to it is, that we need support. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that's coming at us to take us out of that peaceful, centered, grounded place is, it's a barrage. It's like the idea that any of us are stronger, strong enough by ourselves to do that all the time is just, it's really not a good starting place mm -hmm. versus having a community of people who are also on a journey. And there's a, handful of small things that are totally doable on a day-to-day -day basis that aren't overwhelming in terms of time or difficulty. And in that, these small steps done together with support can change, you know, are transformative. Like it's, it's not, I think that's the beautiful thing about actually doing it in, in, in that way. Most of us really struggle with, with how goals work. 
we want to lose 20 pounds. We want the, we want a, a huge promotion. We want to start a business that makes millions of dollars a year. And we can, we can see that picture and we can do the vision board. I want the yacht and I want this and I want to help a million people and all those things. But what do I do today? Hmm. That moves me one step closer in the direction that I can actually do and that I don't feel overwhelmed with. And that's why I think most people don't keep their new year's resolutions. If they even set them is we get, a picture of the big thing, but we forget the small stuff and the small stuff is equally challenging without support, but it is doable. And so for us and, you know, having coaches, and this is the other thing I just would mention, I think a lot of people, and this is a big place that for me is information is only half of, it's only half of the formula. We do need the ideas, but it's a mind and heart thing. And so all of the information, and I think we can ask anyone, what do we need to do to be in better shape or to be healthier? And a hundred percent of everybody knows if we eat better, we get better, you know, we get better sleep, we exercise, we reduce stress, that should work. But the number of people doing that is, you know, exponentially smaller than who have the information. Mm. And so that's why we have to have both the information guides, mm. you know, the, the experts in the fields and all the books that we're drawn to reading. And then we need a simple way to take morsels of their wisdom, morsels of the practices that they, they all, everyone says the same thing. Like if this is not, you go back 2000 years and everyone has been preaching pretty similar things in terms of creating and living a very fulfilled life. So just taking a couple of those things in a very like bite-sized piece that it's like, I can do that. And, mm -hmm. and if we do that, I remember we were doing last thing, I'm sorry, no, is, it. uh, we were, my, my brother and I were, had created a program for physical well-being health. He's a great chiropractor and I had, you know, been coaching and we wanted to help people form, you know, just feel great and, and be healthy in all ways. And so we had come up with this program and then we interviewed a bunch of people and said, will you give us an hour? Will you give us, we started with, will you give us two hours a day if we, if we guarantee in a year, you will be like the exact person that you want physically. You will feel, and a hundred, not one person said yes, absolutely not. I will not give you two hours a day. One hour a day, still 0% of the people would give us an hour every day. 30 minutes, a lot more said yes, but when? Yes, mm. but when? And it was dependent on would it fit. When we got to 15 minutes and 10 minutes, 10 minutes was the magic number. When we asked, would you give us 10 minutes a day if we could totally change your life in, in a year? Not one person could look at us and actually say no without also having that little bit of uh, awareness that then I just don't want it. Like <laughs> now, if that's true, if they could actually do that in 10 minutes, now that's on me. I could find 10 minutes, no matter how many kids I have, no matter how busy I am at work. If I don't have 10 minutes for me, I just don't want it. That's, and, and I think that's the big deal is we have to be understanding that people's lives really are busy and most people don't have two hours a day to meditate or do an hour, hour of yoga or, you know, it, but if we could start with 10 minutes a day, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night, that's, that's the game. And I think, you know, that's really the crux is if, if you can get yourself around a community of people, have a coach and then get a gentle accountability structure so that it's, it feels good. You're celebrating along the way and you're doing a couple things each day, just simple that you can definitely do. It's like, oh yeah, I can do, I could do that. I could definitely think of three things I'm grateful for first thing in the morning. I could definitely do one nice act of kindness to a stranger each day. Simple little thing, like things that I could do that would really elevate the quality of my life. Yeah. It's 
Beautiful. You know, and we, we, we think a lot about snowball with, with stress. Stress comes in, cortisol, narrow focus, heart goes up, you know, we can't, we, we, we lose the ability to creatively see the, the world around us. And we just kind of like, you know, get, get tighter and tighter in that trash compactor. So it sounds like what you're saying is that that same snowball effect can happen in a positive way where if we just sort of set the conditions, do a few small things, uh, we start to kind of build and develop. And I know that in my own life, that's been true where, you know, I, I, I wake up in the morning and I do my morning practices. And once I do that, it just sets the intention for my day. And, 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 you know, it is interesting about people saying, I can't give you the time. And it, it does to me come back to why people are so disconnected from wanting to tend to and love them, their own selves. And I do feel like in a lot of ways, we've been sold a bill of goods around yeah. what it is to be successful, back to your word. And that, you know, you know, that idea of external material success, and you see it all the time, lottery winners, celebrities, mm-hmm. people who have achieved, you know, sort of the quote unquote dream are some of the most miserable people on the planet. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, the, la- the, the, you know, I'm coming kind of full circle to Siddhartha, which just really was a profound thing in my early twenties. Herman Hess, after he wrote the book, had written one of his friends and, and his quote that he wrote in this letter to his friend was Siddhartha in the end does not learn true wisdom from any teacher but from a river that roars in a funny way and from a kindly old fool who always smiles and is secretly a saint. Mm. To me, that's, 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 that's the essence of kind of finding that peace and love within us to then let radiate out as our children sort of inherently still have. Uh, And I love the visual of, not wanting her to be or your son to be more like you, but you being more like him. And I think for, for adults that sometimes we forget about the fact that the magic that we felt as children is still possible mm-hmm. today. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have for our uh, audience in your secret garden for a few final words, Jeff? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just, I'm very grateful. Uh, this has been a, a profound conversation. I just really love it. And, and that would be my, uh, kind of final thought is making time for deep conversations, whether you're listening, but be challenged to go deep and and see what's inside of you and, and just playing around in the depths of who each of you are is, is worth it. it it's mm-hmm. so worth it to explore what's inside the richness and the everything that we're looking for. Really, it, it's all about a journey home. I once heard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of my teachers said that all growth and spirituality is letting go. There, there's nothing that we're adding on. It's, it's all a process of letting go of mm. stuff we picked up. And I think that's beautiful because that just always makes me feel lighter. Like I'm enough. I actually just got to get rid of some stuff. This belief doesn't work for me. Like that, that belief isn't, isn't uh, serving me anymore. Um, I'm not adding, you know, I could, I could let, let my love flow a little bit more here, but just this idea that you know, the journey is really about letting go instead of adding on. And, and, and how does that feel just playing in that? Ah, that's perfect. I really appreciate you. Thank Likewise. You. I'm just so grateful to know you. Grateful to know you too. Thank you for sharing the time. 
as we know, flow is most found in deep conversations. And I can say, assuredly, this was a, a flowing conversation for me. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it very much. And I will be talking to you soon. Thank you. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive. Thank you.